Okay, everybody. Hey, uh, hi, Gunner. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another Dave and Gunner Show episode. And uh, this time I got uh, Kurt Seafried uh, on the line to talk about DWF. And it's like, wait, what, what, what the heck is DWF? So welcome, Kurt, to the show. Glad you're here. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah. So before we get into DWF, um, what, what do you do at Red Hat? Well, tell me about uh, how did you get to Red Hat and what do you do? So I was originally hired uh, essentially to be the first cloud security guy on the uh, product security team. Mm -hmm. uh, so essentially handling all of our cloud products. So for example, OpenStack, OpenShift, uh, things like uh, cluster storage as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Because prior to that, uh, Red Hat didn't have a specific security person to handle just those products. And additionally, I've, I've had a long history with the CVE project. And so when I came on, uh, Joshua Bressers actually handed off his uh, CVE responsibilities to me. And that's how I ended up handling a lot of the CVE stuff for, uh, for Red Hat. Hmm. Okay. All right. So now is, is your full-time job the, the CVN, CVE end of it, or, or are you still doing cloud stuff? I still do cloud stuff. I have uh, about a dozen pro uh, products that I'm responsible for. Yeah. And I handle uh, some of the CV stuff, though. Now that's actually been internally handed off to several other people, which is also nice because we have more than just one person handling it now internally. Yeah. Yeah. And then as far as the distributed weakness filing project goes, uh, I've been working on that as well in my uh, copious spare time and some Red Hat time as well. Nice. Nice. Okay. So how long have you been at Red Hat? I've been at Red Hat uh, coming up on five years in September. Oh, you'll be getting the puck. That'll be good. I've heard about this thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a hockey puck that has your name on it. That's clear. Um, so that'll be nice. Uh, yeah. yeah. So very good. So very good. So we're throwing around words like CVE and DWF, but before before we get into DWF, wh what is CVE and and what do we do with it? So the idea behind CVE is it's the Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures Database. And essentially the problem is we have a lot of security vulnerabilities, uh, many of which are similar to each other. So for example, a product like WordPress, uh, it has cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. Uh, and quite often, you know, they're fixing them and then more are found the next month or the next release. And so the problem is how do we talk about these vulnerabilities and know that we're actually talking about the same vulnerability, you know, because when I say the cross-site scripting vulnerability in WordPress version two, well, there, there's actually been several, um, mm -hmm. even within the same functions. And so the idea is it just gives a concise and specific name to a vulnerability, or in some cases, multiple vulnerabilities if they're related. Mm -hmm. And then the format is CV hyphen the year and then hyphen uh, just a, a sequence number. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's essentially a, it's an inventory tracking number for vulnerabilities that allows multiple people uh, from different vendors, customers, mm -hmm. people who maybe work as consultants to all make sure we're talking about the same vulnerabilities. Yep. So when somebody says, you know, did we fix vulnerability X? We know for sure what they're talking about. And we can, cons you know, we can say with uh, a high degree of certainty, yes, we fix that vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's I, I, I agree that it's more than just uh, um, between vendors. And it's also, you know, uh, I guess, community and then also within versions of an individual product. So think about things like OpenSSL and RHEL 5, 6 and 7 and 
which ones are affected and which ones aren't affected and all that. And it's, it's a good way to um, uh, know whether a uh, particular vulnerability is applicable to a particular products. That's cool. Cool. Um, so what do we do at Red Hat with CVEs? Uh, you know, do we, what do we do with them? So the beauty is at Red Hat, uh, in the interest of transparency and making our life easier, every single security vulnerability that we process, either if it's found internally, found externally and reported to us, every single security vulnerability we handle, we make sure it gets a CV. Uh, and Red Hat itself is a CV numbering authority, so we can assign oh. CVs to issues. Uh, mm -hmm. And this ensures that literally everything going out has a CV number attached to it, which makes it really easy for customers to track these things. And also, for example, when they talk to GSS to say mm -hmm. CVE hyphen 1234, and yeah. GSS knows exactly what they're talking about. And the other beauty of this is, is it's in our Bugzilla, it's in our Red Hat security advisories, it's in uh, the Yum uh, mm -hmm. security plugin, it can consume that data, Mm -hmm. And we also publish the data in a format called OVAL, the Open Vulnerability Assessment Language. I believe that's mm -hmm. what that acronym yep, stands yep. for. That's right. And that data in turn is consumed by other security products. So companies that have you know, a security dashboard or mm -hmm. uh, security scanning software can automatically consume this data from Red Hat and ensure that all of their Red Hat systems are up to date or remediated or that they're at least aware of the risk if they choose not to patch. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And also, um, we, you know, in our, um, we have a, a CVE database, right? That's public facing that's that you don't even have to have a subscription for it. Um, you can go in and you could look up CVE numbers and what's cool is that you could see whether a product is, uh, vulnerable or not applicable. And that, that's really cool to go back to a security officer and say, look, I'm running this version of RHEL the flaw in OpenSSL was way old and it never existed in this in RHEL 7 or, or whatever the version is. Um, yeah, and we also do uh, mapping. There's a mapping between CVEs and IAVMs too, right? Correct, yeah. So we also do a lot with IAVMs too, right? Correct. So the, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense has their own internal uh, tracking of vulnerabilities. And they send out what are called IAVAs, uh, Information Assurance Vulnerability um, Alerts. And mm -hmm. essentially that notifies, well, I guess you could call them their internal customers of vulnerabilities that they need to worry about. And one thing I find interesting is the military has a slightly different view of information security than a lot of other um, organizations, uh, because literally in their case, you know, people can die if these systems fail. Right. And so they send out IAVAs, uh, which actually refer to various, uh, either a single CV or multiple CVEs in various products uh, that they use and care about. So, for example, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, um, you know, certain web frameworks and other things that they, they widely use. And essentially, if an IAVA is issued, uh, then that part, part of the DOD that's using that software has a certain amount of time to deal with the vulnerability and either remediate it or do some sort of workaround mm -hmm. uh, or, for example, even stop using it if that's uh, necessary. And essentially, it's their own internal compliance and enforcement effort to make sure that you know their systems are secure and aren't going to be externally breached by like a well-known security vulnerability. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Yep. Yeah. And and the reason why I bring it up is that uh, we also do uh, the IAVA mapping on our customer portal. So if and I'll put a link in the show notes to it, people could check it out where, um, you know, a DOD person gets an IAVA that that it's like, oh, my gosh, you got to do all this. Um, you could plug in that IAVA uh, number and then it will uh, expand and show you what CVEs are in there. And then you could drill down and then see. Uh, what products are affected, and you could find out that oh, RHEL five is not applicable, and and so it's really really slick. And that I have a mapping tool is actually uh, it's part of our Access Labs, which is running on OpenShift, um, which is fun fact. Um, so this that thing I've talked to a lot of our DoD customers are like, oh my gosh, that's like the best thing in the world. They they love using it. Um, and even in the if you look at the CVEs. Um, it's it's bi-directional, right? So I can take an IAVM number to drill down to find the CVEs. And then if I look at the CVE page, it actually has an IAVM on that page. So I could drill back up to the IAVM. So it's, it's a lot of fun uh, if that's fun to you. Um, so, yeah, so we got that. And what else? So what other products um, do we integrate with when it comes to CVEs? Well, see, that's the beauty is these are open standards. Um, yeah. And for example, OpenSCAP, the security content automation protocol, oh, yeah. can consume this data and do some automated remediation. So not only will it tell you what's broken on your system, you can then basically tell it to go fix it. Uh, so things like remote root login or out-of-date software, or uh, there's several hundred tests now in this thing. And uh, prior to Red Hat, I actually worked at a variety of security uh, contracting firms that actually essentially produced and ship this data to customers. And there's a lot of different security products now that consume this data. And additionally, we've I even had customers back then querying me, why did all of the vulnerabilities we told them about not have CV numbers, right? Mm -hmm. They wanted every single thing to have a CV number uh, because a CV number is essentially a social insurance number for a vulnerability, right? It makes it mm -hmm. far easier to track. And like I said, that's one of the things I love about Red Hat is we have essentially 100% of our vulnerabilities get CVs. And I know for a fact that there's other uh, vendors that will only assign CVs to publicly found issues. For example, they won't do CVEs for internally discovered issues. They'll just fix them and say, you know, in the patch notes that there's a security update, you, you need to install this, <laughs> but we can't tell you why. Yeah. Uh, oh, which... Yeah. You know, from a customer perspective is you have all this patch churn with no explanation, which is, I, I imagine, not very fun. Yeah. No, it's, it's quote unquote security and other enhancements in the release notes. And it's like, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and that also it integrates a satellite, too, and everything. And, and like the YUM security plugin, you could um, you could actually do a YUM update based upon a CVE number, uh, yep. which is pretty sweet, too. Yeah. yeah, and there's also so, Access Insights yeah. now, which is the uh, uh, available mm -hmm. with the Red Hat right. subscription. And I know that for really high severity flaws, that Access Insight rules are created to to essentially warn you that your system is vulnerable to this issue, uh, and it'll tell you how to get the update. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's that. That's pretty sweet too. And so I want to. Uh, have a whole episode just on Access Insights pretty soon. I'm, I want to do that soon. But so how does this compare? So we talked about how um, commercial companies can sometimes be opaque in terms of security transparency. But do what about like, what, you know, 
do open source projects, is it hit or miss when with CV tracking with these guys? Yeah, and a lot of that is due to the fact that a lot of open source projects don't have a mature security response uh, yeah. capability. And, and quite frankly, you know, some of these projects are maybe just one guy or one primary person working on it. Uh, even the larger projects I've dealt with, um, and some of whom do have quite mature security response cycles, are still not ready to do CVE assignments um, because essentially to get to the point of doing a CV assignment, you know, you have to be able to process vulnerabilities uh, essentially from cradle to grave, you know, from somebody yes. reporting a, a potential issue to you, you need to be able to drill down, figure out exactly what it is. Uh, and then only then would you be able to assign a CV properly, right? You can't, you know, we don't want to assign CVs to like, well, there might be something in this project. We're not really sure which version. We're not sure what kind of vulnerability it is, but we think there might be a problem. You know, yeah. CVs are not useful unless they have specific information, you know, which versions are affected, what kind of vulnerability is this? And so a lot of projects also, for them, they don't have it doesn't affect them directly. You know, they just fix the bug and they move on, right? Mm -hmm. It's quite honestly, it's often more the downstream consumers of the software that really need to be tracking this. You know, oh, upstream just released version 1.2.3. Do we need to care, right? Mm -hmm. We have version 1.2.2 and it works. It doesn't crash. Well, why, why should we spend time and money upgrading to 1.2.3? Now, if there's a CV associated with that and you can look up the information on that CV, uh, then you can make a, a you know a very informed quick decision. Uh, but when yeah, like you said, the patch notes just say like security update. It's like, well, is it a minor security issue that can only be locally exploited, or is it something you know remote code execution, literal end of the world? Anybody can compromise this thing. Yeah, yeah, huh? Yeah, and that's that's something else. Yeah. Yeah, and so to me, the biggest thing about CV is it provides tracking of the vulnerabilities and. Like any dictionary, the more complete it is, the more valuable it is. And so for a vendor like Red Hat, where we essentially, our goal is 100% CVE coverage of all of our products, you know, customers can use our products with a high degree of assurance that what they're using is up to date or not up to date. And more to the point, if they choose not to update, they can then have the information to implement compensating controls or workarounds or... Right. Uh, to simply say, oh, you know, we only run it on a closed network with no public access, so we're not worried about that. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Okay, so it sounds like uh, CVEs are awesome. Uh, we don't need to do anything more, and we can end the pa uh, podcast now. Is that is that right? Uh, not quite. One of the challenges no. with CVE now has been scalability. Okay. So traditionally, uh, CVE was handled... Um, one of two ways, either the, the MITRE corporation would assign the CVE mm -hmm. or what's called the CV numbering authority would assign a CV. And traditionally, uh, CV numbering authorities were the larger companies, uh, Red Hat, Microsoft, Oracle. And the majority of CVEs only, or CNAs, sorry, only assign CVEs for their own products. So Microsoft assigns, you know, CVs for Microsoft products, Oracle for Oracle products, uh, with one exception with being Red Hat. And Red Hat was essentially a special CV numbering authority in that not only did we do CVEs for our own software, but for the entire open source world. Wow. 
That, yeah, I was going to ask that because, like, like what happens? Like, do we only do it? Like, for instance, if OpenSSL has a bug or something, what's preventing us from uh, from a somebody that's uh, designated to to assign the numbers? Um, can can we possibly have a collision with somebody else coming up with a number, or or are we the only ones that are doing it for all of open source? So there is the possibility of collisions even outside of Red Hat. There's been cases where uh, a person has gone to, say, CERT and asked them for a CV and coordinated with them to get a CV, but then also gone to MITRE directly and asked for a CV. And of course, depending on how the request is made, it might not be obvious that you know two requests coming in are identical. Right. And there have been cases of duplicates even within just MITRE assigning the CVs because, again, sometimes these vulnerabilities are not well described, right? Or right. for example, a vulnerability is partially described, they assign a CV, and then sometimes potentially months later, the project or the vendor comes out with an update with a details or potentially no details, and then a CV number is assigned again. Now, fortunately, this is pretty rare. And generally speaking, they just update the CV database to say, you know, CVE-1234 is a duplicate of CVE-1000. Uh, mm -hmm. And so people know to go look at the old one. And then there's other cases too, where CV numbers are sometimes rejected. Uh, so for example, we've had, uh, we're very aggressive internally about assigning CVs to security vulnerabilities. And there actually are about two or three cases a year where we assign a CV to a security vulnerability, but then after more investigation, turns out not to be a vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, for example, there was one recently in OpenShift where, at first glance, it kind of sounded like a vulnerability, so we assigned a CV, and then upon closer investigation, it actually was a feature of the product that essentially we had to allow this privilege escalation uh, through a known documented method mm -hmm. for the product to work. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So what, what happens in those cases? It's just like the MITRE site would just say that, it would just be stubbed out and say nothing to see here or or, or the, the numbers are just skipped or, or how does that work? Uh, well, ideally they would be told about this and that's another thing. Not all vendors inform MITRE of what they've done with their CVs, right? MITRE gives them a block of CVs and they use it. Um, okay. At Red Hat, we do tell MITRE, for example, when we reject a CV or have a duplicate, we email them directly to tell them, first of all, that the CV is you know a duplicate or a reject and then also the reason why. So for example, in the case of the OpenShift uh, issue, we, we said, you know, please reject the CV and here's why. It turns out it's not a vulnerability for these reasons. And then MITRE can update their database and say, you know, CV1234 is rejected. Uh, and if they choose, they can add information to the database saying why it was rejected. Yeah. Yeah. And and so when you say a block of CVEs, it's sort of like it's CVE dash year dash and then a number. And is that last number like somebody gets one to 100 or, or I always thought it was very sequential in terms of this was the first vulnerability of the year up until the last the highest number is the last one of the year. Is that not the case? No, because MITRE assigns so usually prior to the beginning of the year, various large vendors get their blocks in advance. So for example, in December, we'll get a block of CV numbers for the for the upcoming year, right? Because come mm -hmm. January 1st, we wanna mm -hmm. start using them. And as we go through the year, you know, various vendors use them at different rates at Red Hat. We go through still, it's about five, 600 CVs a year internally. Mm -hmm. And so as we get down to our 
as our pool of numbers available shrinks, we, we essentially ask MITRE for more numbers. And then they typically assign us a block of around 50. And obviously the last block assigned at the, towards the end of the year probably will not get fully used. Um, and this is true of most vendors, you know, they, they get assigned uh, 50 or 100 uh, CVEs and chances are they won't have, you know, exactly that many vulnerabilities that year. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, vulnerabilities can be reported publicly after the year has ended and they would still mm-hmm. be from the previous year, right? So if there's okay. an embargoed issue, you know, well, this has been known and in the process of being handled since maybe December, but it's only coming public, you know, in the middle of January. Mm-hmm. And so those CV numbers would be from the previous year. Um, so in general, within a block of CV numbers, they assign to a vendor, they go sequentially. Um, but with over a dozen CNA CV numbering authorities, uh, the usage of those blocks varies quite significantly. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that's and I guess that's what's circling this back to DWF. And this is where um, years ago it worked great. Um, But now we're starting to see the strain of the process and we need to uh, uh, start thinking differently. Right. Yeah. So that's been two of the major issues with uh, the CVE project being handled by MITRE is the process and the technology they're using was completely suitable when the project started about 15 years ago. Uh, And quite frankly, it needed a strong central leader to push this through because there was uh, actually about a half dozen major numbering efforts Mm -hmm. back then. There was bug track IDs, there was uh, Secunia, there was... Oh, I, there were some. There were several. I can't even remember anymore because they they went away so long ago. Mm-hmm. And luckily for us, CVE was essentially the winner of that battle, if you will. Yeah. And now we've grown to a point where you know, ten years ago, a thousand vulnerabilities a year was a massive number of vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Now that's a month. Oh, wow! You know. And this, the other thing to keep in mind too, is currently CVE only covers really the the North American uh, focused market and English speaking software. You know, there's mm-hmm. very limited coverage of Chinese, Indian, Japanese uh, software, and other industries. You know, for example, the aerospace industry. As far as I know, they haven't had any CVs, but they produce a lot of software that no doubt must have security flaws that they're hopefully fixing. Mm-hmm. And so basically what's come about is we're now looking at how do we expand CV to get better coverage and also automation, right? Mm-hmm. Because we can't have people handling 10,000 or 100,000 vulnerabilities a year, right? We have mm-hmm. to automate this. Otherwise, well, we just don't have the parking to hire that many people. Right, right. And so what we're experimenting with right now and with the distributed weak, uh, weakness filing project is essentially federation of CVE assignments. So the DWF currently will be handling open source software. Uh, longer term, we may see other, other federated entities to handle countries such as, say, Japan or China, uh, which would also benefit significantly because, you know, of the language barrier. Right. And then probably in the long term, I would predict that there will also be industry verticals because within an industry, you know, chances are people make the same mistakes 
or they reuse the same software, you know, much like mm -hmm. the open source world. Mm -hmm. And so chances are we'll see industry verticals, especially around things like healthcare, you know, uh, self-driving cars, for example, you know, we really want those to have good software. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, that's the long-term goal is to federate this so that we can have not only scaling issues solved, but also cultural issues. I mean, there is a huge difference between, say, the aerospace industry, the healthcare industry, the open source industry, right? Mm -hmm. These are very, even though they're all producing software, they're doing it for very different requirements with very different cultures. Yes. You know, in the open source world, it's very easy for me to say, hey, let's just shove this into Git and make it public. Right. Right. Everybody right. agrees that's a great idea. I suspect if you tried that in the healthcare industry, they their lawyers would probably all uh, have something to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. Or if it's, uh, you know, closely related to that is safety as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are certain things you, you don't want to do from that perspective as well, like from an FAA perspective. Um, so this is cool uh, that that we're looking at doing this. What I saw in the article that that really triggered me to reach out to you about this is that um, with the old system, they were talking about trolls that would get CVEs filed. Uh, was it Justin Timberlake had a CVE created? Mm -hmm. um, and not really Justin Timberlake. I, we don't think. Um, but what's what's preventing um, Justin Timberlake from uh, getting a, a DWF number? Well, one advantage uh, that the DWF has is because we're dealing with open source, mm -hmm. we simply ask for a link to the vulnerable code or the code fix. Uh, okay. And the majority of security vulnerabilities, when you actually like point somebody to the specific line of code and say it's this type of vulnerability, you know, it's a buffer overflow or a cross-site scripting vulnerability, they're really obvious. You know, mm -hmm. when you know what you're looking for, it's like that. You know, it's like when you have a puzzle and somebody points out the specific corner piece you're looking for, it's like, oh, well, obviously it's that one. Yes, yes. You know, um, but when you're staring at a thousand random pieces of puzzle scattered on a table, it takes a while to find the corners. Okay. So okay. one major advantage the DWF has is it's very easy for us to to validate, you know, the vulnerabilities that people are coming to us with. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, on the, on the closed source side, it becomes a little more difficult and a bit more driven by trust. So obviously, if, if known vendors or people are coming to you, chances are they're legitimate. But, you know, part of the challenge is we, we do quite regularly have these one-offs of, you know, some person we've literally never heard of coming to us with what looks like a legitimate vulnerability, mm -hmm. you know. And luckily, very few of them are sort of trolls or messing around with us. Um, right. But that does happen, you know, for whatever reason. And so a big part of this is just it's uh, validating the vulnerability, which, again, if it's the closed source world, uh, what they'll typically try to do, my understanding is, is work with the vendor, right? Because hopefully the vendor, you know, can validate the vulnerability and reproduce it uh, or, you know, state that simply our product doesn't do that. I don't know what they're talking about. Um, and we've had vulnerabilities reported like that. I remember one uh, where somebody was complaining that credit card data wasn't securely handled in satellite server. And I'm like... What now? <laughs> you know, we, we don't handle credit card data and satellite server at all. Yeah. You know. Right, right. That's hilarious. Um, wow. So with with uh with DWF then, like you who's all working on it? Is it is it mostly you or is it you got a group of people that you're uh, in the community that you're working with, or what what does that look like? 
so currently, well, we have a core group of uh, five of us on the board, and one of the reasons for that is to give us a uh, like a tiebreaker mechanism for decision making. Yep. Although we haven't really had any difficult decisions to make yet, we we all seem to be in agreement. Uh, additionally, there's a group of about a dozen people that I'll be initially training to do CV assignments, um, mm -hmm. not only for the DWF itself, but also to become CV numbering authorities in their own right. So, for example, GitHub is looking at becoming one for their own software. Okay. And longer term, the goal with the Distributed Weakness Filing Project is, is to train people to assign CVs for the DWF itself, but also yes. train people to assign CVs for their own CV numbering authorities. So for major projects, you know, like say OpenStack or the Apache Foundation is for them to then take this on in-house and do it themselves. Because quite honestly, one of the major benefits of CVE is the sooner it happens, the better, because yes. it makes it much easier to talk about these vulnerabilities. You know, there's very little um, confusion when something has a CV number. Yep. Yeah. So, well, I could imagine like, right, like how would we compare and contrast it now with CVEs where I could imagine there are some uh, CVE people at MITRE that are updating the website all the time as they get stuff in and everything. If you distribute it, how is, is, is there, is there like some sort of centralized site that would have all this stuff or how, how do you do that? Does that make sense? Yeah, so in the short term, the, the distributed weakness filing project, we publish our data, you know, uh, in Git using GitHub. Okay. And we have a database uh, for the CVEs we've assigned. And then we also have an artifacts database with more detailed information and more importantly, copies of the, say, for example, Bugzilla page or the patch. Um, because one of the challenges is, is when you just link to a site saying, you know, go here to look at the patch or go here to look at the security report, sites go away, mm -hmm. right? Sun.com, for example, is gone. Right. You know, right. very sad. And so part of that is we're actually, if you want to get your CVE listed in our database, you have to submit essentially some proof yes. that we can then hold on to because 10 years from now, you know, somebody might want to see that. Yes. And initially, MITRE is not directly consuming our data, they're simply marking the CVEs we've assigned as reserved so that people know to go look for them. However, in the longer term, the goal will be is for MITRE to consume the distributed weakness filing project data directly and shove it into their database. Okay. Uh, and of course, MITRE provides that sort of head stream uh, database where people then pull from them and consume. So for example, the National Vulnerability Database, you know, the NVD right. guys at NIST, pull the MITRE database every, I think it's day or every couple hours, and add their own information such as CVSS scoring and then publish that data themselves, you know, publicly. Okay. Yeah, and so, okay. So a big no, part of the don't. goal is, is to have everybody feeding data upstream. So for example, okay. if a CNA exists under the DWF, they have to feed their data back into, into the DWF, and the DWF in turn feeds that data back into MITRE so that the MITRE database is complete and authoritative. Ah, okay. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because I was wondering if there would be like Apache is going to have their own DWF site and Red Hat has one. And then it's like how, you know, and it sounds like this would ultimately get tied uh, together by MITRE. And yep. that, that leads to my next question is, is what, how have things been received, whether it's with the community and I, you know, and I would wonder, it's like, wait a minute, is MITRE all bent out of shape that it's like they're getting called out and or, or are they receptive to this? 
Uh, they're, they've become receptive to this. I mean, initially there was some, uh, some difficulty with, uh, cause part of it too, is we wanted to make changes and we, to be honest, weren't really sure what changes needed to be made. You know, yeah. we essentially knew that there was a problem in that CV assignments were taking longer than they had in past, you know, so things were not working as well as they had. So, you know, what was the actual problem? And what were the actual, you know, solutions? And a big part of that is is in taking this open source approach, uh, part of what we're trying to do is fail fast. You mm -hmm. know, so mm -hmm. as we do find problems and failures, you know, how do we address them quickly? So uh, one of the nice things is MITRE has become much more attentive and essentially open to input from the CV editorial board. And we actually now have uh, conference calls every two weeks that are actually quite well attended. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of issues that are being, you know, hashed out um, and even issues, for example, when I started the distributed weakness filing project that I hadn't even thought of, you know, hmm. and somebody raises an issue. And I'm like, oh, oh, that's a problem. You know, and we need to we need to find a good answer to that because the simple answer may not be ideal in five years, you know, especially if we're scaling this up and out. Um, so and, and even simple things like, you know, how do we feed data back to the to the top end database. Do we want to require it or, you know, just strongly encourage it? Because for example, part of me in an ideal world would like the CV database to be 100% complete and correct. Yeah. However, I think it's more important that issues get CVEs, even if those assignments are not 100% perfect because there's so many vulnerabilities that people have to talk about now. I think it's more important to have the CVs out there and not necessarily have them in the database and be all correct and perfect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And so looking out into the future, do you see like the YUM security plugin and satellite and everything using DWFs or is it still going to be CVE based? Well, the DWF is just assigning CV numbers, right? Um, and so, yeah, YUM and OpenSCAP and Satellite and well, Cloud Forms, all those things will continue to consume, uh, for example, the oval data that we make available. And that oval data will include uh, CVs from MITRE, CVEs from Red Hat, CVEs from the DWF. So essentially, there's no real change there. It's just it's an additional data source that we now consume, like uh -huh. uh, actually okay. the, the security uh, team we you know is now monitoring the DWF database for changes. So mm -hmm. as the DWF assigns CVEs, you know Red Hat is automatically told about that, and then we we process that process them as needed. Yeah. Okay. But but would somebody be doing say like a yum update against a CVE number? Um, would it be always from like the the CVE number, or would it be uh, actually like DWF dash year dash something? And like you know what I mean? Oh, uh, I see. Yeah. So initially, the DWF had looked at assigning uh, numbers in the form DWF hyphen year hyphen number. Yeah. Uh, but that changed. Uh, we are going. We are an official CV numbering authority, so we are oh. actually assigning CV numbers. Yeah. Sorry that okay. that okay. old no, article. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, things have changed since then. So yeah, no, the DWF is on board as an official CNA, and we actually have a block set aside of CV yeah. hyphen year hyphen 1 million to 1,999,999. This is like the IPv6 of security. Um, yeah, yeah, really, this is amazing. Okay, well, cool. Well, hey, I'm, I'm going to let you go soon, but um, 
like what are some resources if, if people want to learn more? Um, where where are uh, some good resources to learn more about what we're doing with security? And if people want to reach out to us, uh, how, what's a process to get security guidance? So if you're a Red Hat customer, you can reach out to your Red Hat support contact or your TAM uh, and they'll know where to go. Mm -hmm. uh, the access portal as well, we have the security blog. Mm -hmm. And then I believe there will also be show notes at the dgshow.org website uh, covering all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one one stop shop. That's uh, Dan uh, Walsh's homepage. So yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Um, so with that, uh, Kurt, I'm so happy that you're able to join us on the show. Um, this is going to be uh, get people all pumped up for summit because there's going to be a lot of security folks at the summit, right? I, I think we have a whole track just on security. Yep. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. It's become a hot topic with, well, it's, it's a, it's time has come. Yeah. All right. Well, Hey, thanks a lot, uh, Kurt for joining. And I want to thank everybody else for joining too. Talk to you later. Thanks. Thank you.